America pulls their troops out of Afghanistan after 20 years of armed conflict with the Taliban. And many people are applauding the end to American interventionism in Afghanistan and the end to what has seemed to be a pointless war with no clear objective, no clear goal line, and no end in sight. But is everyone happy? What about the Afghanis on the ground who whose lives are now in danger? Are they happy? Also, on today's episode, do gender pronouns got you down? Do they leave you feeling confused and, and anxious, worried about whether you should call an individual he, she, they, or zem? Well, don't worry. The infinite wisdom of TikTok is here to help. Hey, it's Lucas Scrobot, and you're listening to The Lucas Scrobot Show, where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future episode 248, July, July, August 11th, 2021. And yes, indeed, America is ending what will turn out to be a 20-year engagement in Afghanistan. Uh, They will have all of their troops out, President Biden says, by August 31st, which is nearly 20 years to the day of September 11th, 2001, which kicked off this this 20-year war in Afghanistan and tens of thousands, over 100,000 lives lost in Afghanistan. And many people think that this was just a bad deal from the get-go. Many people think that it's just interventionism. America should have stayed out, that it was a causeless war that lost thousands of human lives, not just the 3,000 plus American lives, but tens of thousands of Afghanis and Pakistanis were lost in this conflict. Many think that it was a war without purpose, a war that was fueled by an opioid crisis, a war that fueled the opioid crisis, a war that was about drugs and money. And it's true that Afghanistan provides 90% of the world's opium, but only 1% of that actually ends up in America. Most of the opium that uh, and heroin that hits the streets in America is coming from Latin America. But it's still a, a, a huge economic uh, boon for the Taliban, the, the use of opioids, selling opioids, exporting them out of Afghanistan. So there's some great arguments there. Well, here, finally, America is pulling their troops out. Now, this is not something that was initiated by President Joe Biden. So we can't throw all the blame on him. But we, we, we see this was a war that was started by President Bush, a war that was escalated by President Obama, a war that uh, President Trump said we are going to begin to withdraw out of Afghanistan. And here is President Biden finally closing the chapter on this 20-year book of history. Here, here he is at a press conference uh, on August 10th addressing uh, the nation about what his opinions are about the ending of this war. Just the last few days, multiple cities in Afghanistan have fallen to the Taliban. There's irrefutable evidence that a vast majority of those Afghan forces cannot hold ground there. Has your current plan to withdraw U.S. troops changed at all? No. Look, we spent over a trillion dollars, over 20 years, We trained and equipped with modern equipment over 300,000 Afghan forces. And Afghan leaders have to come together. We lost thousands, lost death and injury, thousands of American personnel. They've got to fight for themselves, fight for their nation. The United States, I'll insist we continue to keep the commitments we made of providing close air support, making sure that their Air Force functions and is operable, resupplying their forces with food and equipment, and paying all their salaries. But they've got to want to fight. They have outnumbered the Taliban, and I'm getting daily briefings 
I think there is still a possibility you have a, a significant new Secretary of Defense, our equivalent of Secretary of Defense in Afghanistan, Bushmoa Khan, who's a serious fighter. I think they're beginning to realize they've got to come together politically at the top. And uh, but we're going to continue to keep our commitment. But I do not regret my decision. Well, that's pretty clear. I I, I don't disagree with President Biden here that the people, the Afghani people, they need to come together and decide to fight for their nation. There, there's some things that are problematic. In the beginning, the question was, it's very clear that city after city, capital city, I think six different capital cities uh, of the different states in Afghanistan has fallen to the Taliban over the last week or two, six different capitals. And many of these regions have, and provinces have an enormous amount of opium and, and poppies, which is going to act as a financial fuel to the Taliban. The Taliban has taken over border entries uh, across Iran, the entries in and out in Iran and up into the north, even in Pakistan. So the military advancement of the Taliban in just a few short days since this announcement is quite staggering. So the fact that the American that that President Joe Biden is saying, well, we've we've trained 300,000 troops and we're going to continue to supply them with equipment and salary and food. That's good. But at the same time, we are seeing uh, an, an increase in conflict and that the Taliban is moving in to take uh, to take that vacuum that is being left, to fill that vacuum that is being left by the U.S. government. Now, over the last number of days, India has decided to evacuate diplomats and their citizens from Mazar al Sharif consulate in Afghanistan because it's just not safe. America has said that uh, to the U.S. embassy in Kabul, Afghanistan, they are urging all Americans to leave the country, admit an increased and fighting, and those who are Americans should not rely on U.S. government flights to exit the country. They're saying just get a plane, on a plane, and leave. Uh, the Taliban have captured journalists, have taken uh, radio managers who were supporting the U.S. forces, supporting the Afghani go uh, government, and has executed him. So there is there in the last week or two, there have been serious, serious loss of life and risk to people who are on the ground who have supported the U.S. forces. Well, here is a clip from ABC uh, with former Ambassador Ryan Crocker talking about the prolonged war and what we might see in the coming days in Afghanistan. A prolonged civil war is a more likely outcome, frankly, George, than a swift Taliban takeover of the entire country. They're being very smart about this. They are uh, not launching major strikes into Kabul. They are doing what they're doing part to uh, create a climate of fear and panic, and they are succeeding wonderfully at this. Creating a climate of fear and panic, China Shinwari, what does that mean? for those left behind, particularly those interpreters, translators, others who helped America during this war. And this next, this next segment of the clip is an interpreter for the United States who have, has been working with the United States for, I believe, eight plus years. All right, um, as we said before, it's already too late uh, if we do not evacuate all those interpreters who are left behind and the Taliban will kill everybody and they will torture them in front of their family and kill them. Um, I just heard a couple of news that when the Taliban, they controlled a couple of cities, they were going and knocking door by door and asking for those people who were supporting the U.S. mission in Afghanistan and they were trying to kill them. And uh, yeah, it's already too late, but we have to do and evacuate those people before it's too late. And uh, as I said before, the Taliban are now like much powerful and, and, and controlling a lot of cities. And these people are not safe anymore in Afghanistan. 
It's true. These people are not safe anymore in Afghanistan. They're going door to door, knocking on doors saying, hey, who do you know that has supported the U.S. mission and the Afghan mission against the Taliban? Send them out. Their, their, Their time has come. Their time has come. The, the, the level of malevolence and cruelty and, and repercussions that will come against people who do not fall in line with the Taliban's agenda or who have actively fought against the Taliban, it will be merciless as we are seen by evidence of what we're already seeing in the, in the short Days, the short number of days since America has said that they will leave. Well, I have some Afghani friends here in the region who some of them have fled Afghanistan because their lives were threatened, because their bombs were going off next to their houses or their kids have PTSD from attacks. They, they lost friends to the Taliban. And so I, I reached out to them and I said, hey, what, what do you think about what's happening with the American troops pulling out? What is your opinion? Because I could sit here and pontificate on my opinion. We could look at experts across the globe and, and history and, and find out their opinion. But what, what about the people who are on the ground? Well, he said that for Afghanis, that flights are, are really barred and closed, at least in some places, including the UAE right now. So people are, are feeling stuck in the country, people whose lives are in danger. He said for, for minority populations like Christians, the, the U.S. troops moving out will mean death for them. The Taliban will find them, they will hunt them down, and they will face the penalty of death. I asked him whether he thinks that this, that it was a good idea in the first place and whether it's a good idea if uh, American troops pull out for the Afghan people. He said, quote, I don't know. After 20 years, we are back in the beginning. Billions of dollars, which is really $1 trillion just by the U.S. government alone, not only NATO and, and other countries were involved in this. So over a trillion dollars spent, hundreds of U.S. lives wasted, over 3,000 U.S. lives lost in this war, and tens of thousands of Afghani lives, tens of thousands of Pakistani lives. I asked him then, do you think that the U.S. should have gone in in the first place? He said, I don't know. Our government is, is corrupt, and this operation has been sabotaged by Iran, by Pakistan, by China, and by Russia. So it is very hard to gauge on face value of whether it was a good idea for the U.S. to enter in the first place or not, because they were facing not just the Taliban in Afghanistan, but they were backed by Pakistan. And, and the Taliban, really by, by some scholars, have, has now been considered and is considered to be a proxy uh, military faction of Afghanistan to, to forward the Pakistani agenda in the region. So they were faced other political parties, such as Iran as well, supporting and, and deterring the U.S. activity uh, in Afghanistan, for, for better or for worse. So it's hard to say of whether or not the U.S. should have gone in or not in the first place. And this is from him, his perspective. And then the final question I asked him was, is Afghanistan better or worse with the U.S. entering? After 20 years, do you see this being better or worse? And obviously from his previous statement is, I don't know. We're now back to where we were 20 years ago. It's 20 years where it seems like all the gains have been instantly lost. But he did say, U.S. has invested in education, women, human's rights, media freedom, infrastructure, and healthcare. That America didn't just come in with bombs and tanks and airstrikes, which they did, which civilians' lives were lost in the war. But they also came in and they invested in education. They invested in women. They invested in children. They invested in freedom of communication and uh, democracy. And I know uh, it's, it's so weird that democracy gets this bad rap. 
And what's strange is it gets the bad rap by people who are normally ultra pro-democracy. They're like, democracy is great, but it's not for everyone. And I do agree in, in an extent that a pure democracy isn't that great. Even in America, we have an, a republic, uh, which is quite different. And I also agree that some nations just aren't ruled by a democracy, and that doesn't make them wrong. But but here in Afghanistan, they have at least seen, and when we look, and we're going to look at the history of what led Afghanistan up to the point of a U.S. invasion in 2001, briefly. But we've seen that the 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 U.S. forces being in there actually created a space for a le level of freedom and liberty that they had not experienced in at least decades, a decade, decade, two decades plus. So there are, there are positives that came out of that invasion, but that, that may have been lost. Now, obviously, the U.S. can't stay indefinitely in Afghanistan and never intended to stay indefinitely in Afghanistan. As we, we mentioned already earlier, this engagement was started by Bush. It was increased by President Obama. President Trump was the one to say, hey, we're going to end up pulling out. We're starting plans to withdraw our troops from Afghanistan. And then here, Biden is now finally pulling out the troops. Now, it seems to me that interventionism is a double-edged sword. It is a damned if you do, damned if you don't. You can't win for losing. If you don't do something in a situation like this, as being what a lot of people deem the you know, the superpower of the world. And a lot of people say, well, you're the ones fighting for liberty. This is your, your promise. You, you want to see justice. Well, you should intervene because you are the one saying that you want to help people. And so if people are asking for help, you should help people who are suffering. And if you don't, you're, you're evil for not helping. But if you do, or how about this? And if you don't, your enemy can grow stronger and stronger, and it can actually lead to more and more atrocities. By not intervening early, it can often lead to worse atrocities and genocide and, and the loss of thousands of lives. It's not just an elusive, elusive uh, consequence, the real consequences. But if you do help, you're then accused of interventionism. You're accused of not minding your own business. You're accused of meddling in in other people's free society, which that's a valid argument in, in many cases. And when you finally do leave, you're then accused of either leaving too soon, not leaving soon enough, leaving the wrong way, leaving a power vacuum, which then leads to greater uh, evils, or wickedness, as we saw in uh, Iraq with the rise of ISIS. America pulled out, it left a power gap, and ISIS rose up. Now, again, with Iraq as well, there's the question of should America even have gone in the, in the first place? Uh, when I talk to my, my sources who, who describe what was happening before America went in to, to pull out Saddam Hussein, they talk about Saddam Hussein saying that they met with him and that leaders were talking with him. And many people were saying that Saddam was changing that him as a strongman was was beginning to soften in his later years. Whether that is 100% true or not, I don't know, but this is what I've been told by people that I know and trust. And there, people were advising the administration, don't go in, it will leave a power gap, and we don't know what will fill that. Well, now we do know what filled that power gap in Iraq, and it was ISIS. Think of the, the damage the atrocities that ISIS did after the U.S. pulled out of Iraq, which then was a result of them pulling out the strongman, which was holding a power balance in the region. What will happen now in Afghanistan? Well, here is a correspondent with uh, the DW News from out of Germany, uh, Ali Latifi. Uh, a journalist correspondent in Afghanistan. I think the people of Afghanistan, they knew that 
I mean, the writing was on the wall that this, you know, interv- that this invasion, whatever you want to call it, was going to end at some point. And ever since Trump, it was very obvious that it was going to happen fairly soon. But what frustrates the Afghan people is not necessarily, you know, they were saying, if you're going to go, go, just tell us when. But more than anything, don't leave without some kind of conditions. You know, there are no conditions on the Taliban. There are no conditions on the government. There is no real, you know, impetus to for either side to go and seriously take on the peace talks in Doha right now. There is no impetus on the Taliban for any kind of a ceasefire or reduction in violence. The fact that they just said, we're leaving with no restrictions, with no um, with, with, with no conditions. That's what's upset the Afghan people mm. more than anything. Leaving with no conditions. That is a problem. And, and it seems as with, with a war like this, it's – and maybe, maybe obviously, I'm sure the US, U.S. government and, and the generals involved in the Afghan military and government, I'm sure they had – Goalposts, I'm sure they had KPIs, I'm sure they had landmarks, I'm sure they had strategy, I'm sure they had goals that they knew that they needed to meet in order and objectives they wanted to fulfill in order for them to be able to pull out. So I don't have intimate knowledge of that. Um, I'm I'm sure that people much smarter than I was working on this problem, uh, but it doesn't seem that there were a lot of conditions or stipulations in this withdrawing from Afghanistan. And it does seem that the Taliban is quickly gaining ground. This is what former President uh, George W. Bush had to say about uh, the fact of the withdrawal from Afghanistan in, in an interview with DW. Uh, the progress that could be made for young girls and women in Afghanistan. It's unbelievable how that society changed from the brutality of the Taliban. And now all of a sudden, you know, sadly, uh, I'm afraid Afghan women and girls are going to suffer unspeakable harm. Is it a mistake, the withdrawal? I, you know, I think it is, yeah. I think because I think the consequences are going to be unbelievably bad. The consequences are going to be unbelievably bad. And whether we uh, agree or disagree with former President Bush's uh, activity in the region. Uh, And whether those will stand the the test of time as being something that was on the right or wrong side of history, that's not for us to to look into today. But I do think he's correct in that the way that we have withdrawn, that the American military is withdrawn, it seems to, to leave this vacuum where the people who will suffer are women, are children, are interpreters who who have helped, even though there's a way out for interpreters, but clearly there are going to be people who aided the the U.S. operation and aided the current Afghani military and government that will will suffer consequences under uh, under the Taliban's rule if they do, whether swiftly or in a long drawn-out war end up winning what might turn into, as uh, former Ambassador Ryan Crocker told us earlier in this show, a a long and drawn-out civil war. Well, here is back to uh, Ali Latifi, his thoughts on uh, <laughs> the operation in the first place and how damaging this 20-year war was and the real toll that it took on the Afghani people. I think it's very interesting that he's suddenly, you know, concerned about women and children because, you know, his war may... And by, by he, he's talking about President Bush. You know, his war made a lot of widows and made a lot of children orphaned. You know, there was a lot of... You know, there there was there was rendition, there was Guantanamo, there was imprisonments, there was night raids, there was drone strikes, there was airstrikes. There was all kinds of things that if he's concerned about civilians, he should have, you know, thought about during his own administration. This is true. He does have a point here that the loss of life over this 20 years is staggering, especially when it's it's framed in the light that all of these gains could could have just been lost in three weeks' time. That 20 years of work can and lives can disappear in a, 
a month's time. Here is a chart that was put together by BBC of the number of lives that have been lost uh, in Afghanistan and Pakistan in the conflict since 2001, 20 years. It shows the U.S. allies and troops killed 3,586, military and police killed in combined from Afghanistan and Pakistan, 75,971, the number of civilians killed in the last 20 years from this conflict, 78,314, and the opposition fighters, or the, the Taliban Incorporated, 84,191. That is over 200,000 lives lost in the last 20 years. And if all of these lives are lost for nothing, then that really does seem like a waste. That really does seem like it was all for nothing, that this was just a big waste of lives, that this was a completely failed operation, and that the pulling out makes all of these lives for naught. The pulling out makes all of these people who suffered before and the suffering going on for nothing. Well, it's important to, to look quickly, and we're going to scream over this really fast, uh, at the history of what led up to Afghanistan being in this place. And we have to go back to, really back to 1978 and even a little bit before to understand the lead up to what has happened in Afghanistan that caused uh, America to enter in the first place. Now, Afghanistan has been a, a, a nation of warring peoples and warring tribes for hundreds of years. And so <laughs> I, I've been talking to other people, some, some friends and colleagues, about how really it was somewhat a fool's errand for America to enter into Afghanistan because they are people who are willing to sit and wait for decades for the right moment to strike. There are people who who make their bread and butter off of fighting and off of war. They are a a strong, durable, mountainous people who who pride themselves on on courage and bravery. And so it's somewhat of a fool's errand for America to enter into Afghanistan in the first place. And, and we look back to 1978 where Russia tried the same thing and they failed for an entire decade, 11 years. Russia was in, in the Soviet war in Afghanistan, which started in April of 1978 with the establishment of the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, where they overthrew the government in a bloody coup, killed all of the, the family members of the, the sitting president, um, Mohammed Duad, killed his family. And, and they took over, which has come to be known as the Suwar Revolution. And so once the PDPA, or the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, came into power, what did they do? Well, they began to implement a liberal and Marxist-Lenin agenda, Leninist agenda. And in here is a mixed bag. First, it moved to replace religious traditions and traditional laws with secular and Marxist-Leninist ones. Men were obliged to cut their hair, and women could not wear a chador or a baya, uh, and mosques were placed off-limits. So here we see, you know, the liberating socialism Marxist Communist Party come in, and what do they say? They force men to cut their beards. I think something like that is happening right now with the Uyghur people. They're being forced to cut their beards. They're, they're not able to practice their religion, no freedom of religion. And, and women were not allowed to cover their heads. A, a, a full-on stamping out of their freedoms. Now, the PDPA also made a number, number of reforms, which really seem to be positive when it comes to women's rights and women's reforms, such as banning forced marriages. 
um, giving state recognition to women's right to vote and, uh, and, and giving education and equality of education to women, job security, health services, and making sure that they had the ability to raise their families right. So there are positive things that the, the socialist Marxist worked to do in educating women during this time. But they also pushed state atheism and, and worked to just full-on outlaw Islam. Now, the USSR also sent in contractors to build roads, infrastructure, hospitals, and schools to drill well water, and they also trained and equipped the Afghan military. This sounds familiar. This is what the United States also tried to do. Obviously, the United States did not uh, close down mosques, but they did uh, work to bring in more education for children, girls, women's rights, and built infrastructure, and trained the military. Well, Russia was not successful in their operation. Now, at the same time, Russia and the PD, or I guess I should say the PDPA, not necessarily Russia, but the PDPA, which was backed and funded by the Marxist-Leninist USSR, they tortured, murdered thousands of members of traditional elite, religious religious establishment, and the intelligentsia. The government launched a campaign of violent repression, killing some 10,000 to 27,000 people and imprisoning another 14 to 20,000 more. The repression plunged large parts of the country, especially rural areas, into open revolts against the new Marxist-Leninist government, and by 1979, unrest had reached 24 out of the 28 Afghan provinces because everyone was uniting under Islam against these communist communist rule and the, and the communist uh, enforcement of ha- having non-religion, of people not being able to worship their God in the way that they wanted to. Well, other atrocities that happened in this time, some scholars believe that the Afghans were victims of genocide by the Soviet Union. Soviet forces and their proxies killed approximately 562,000, between 562,000 and 2 million Afghans. The Russian soldiers also engaged in abductions and rapes of Afghan women. Some statistics say about 6 million people fled Afghan as refugees to Pakistan and Iran, where there are over 38,000 and 38,000 made it to the United States and many more to the European Union. So it, it wasn't all sunshine under the USSR. They did push some reforms, but they also seemed to have pushed a, a genocide. Now, it was because of mounting pressure and, and resistance against the, the Marxist-Leninist-Communist Party in Afghanistan that that finally fell in 1989, which that led to a civil war that took place between 92 and 96, where, where people were, military parties were fighting for power to really reconstitute and reestablish uh, unity among Afghanistan. Well, this resulted in the Taliban coming to party in 1996. Now, Taliban means two students. Talib is students, Ban is two. So Taliban actually just means two students. Uh, And it was from a, it sprung out of a religious school in Pakistan with Afghani refugees in Pakistan. Now, as I said earlier, some believe that really the Taliban became a, a proxy or an extension of the Pakistani army into Afghanistan as there was a lot of international interference in that time uh, in Afghanistan between 92 and 96. Well, it was finally, as I said, we're screaming through this um, history because it really does lead to an idea of what was happening in the country before America stepped in in 2001. And it gives us a clearer picture of, of the conflict that has continued to happen uh, uh, there. 
with continual civil war war for for decades now. Well, it was in 96 that the Taliban, with the military support of Pakistan and the financial support of uh, Osama bin Laden, prepared for another major offense against Masood, who was ruling and, and leading really the military leader over Afghanistan and over Kabul back in 96. Well, in September of 96, Masood, he ordered the retreat from Kabul and the Taliban set up control in Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan, in 1996. And they established the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, which this is important for some of the clips that we're about to play to understand what was happening back in 1996. Well, they imposed on parts of Afghanistan under the control their their political power and their interpretation of Islam. And they issued edicts forbidding women from working outside the home, forbidding women and children to attend schools uh, or leaving the home unless they were accompanied by a male relative. One of uh, a physicians for the human rights said that no other regime in the world has methodically and violently enforced half of its population into virtual house arrest by prohibiting them with the punishment of pain and physical violence. Now, there was one man, as I mentioned before, Ahmed Sas Masood, who was the, the ruling military leader who then re retreated from Kabul, that was withstanding and fighting against the Taliban in Afghanistan for, for a number of years. Uh, the National Geographic did a documentary on it called titled Inside the Taliban, and they said that the only thing standing in the way of the Taliban mass massacres that were happening was Masood. So he was a, an influential leader. He was a political and military leader that was fighting for Afghani people who were being massacred at that time by the Taliban, fighting for women's rights, fighting for uh, young girls to have the right to be educated, women to be able to work, to be able to leave the house. And he resisted and resisted. Now, the Taliban tried to bribe him and said, hey, join our side. We'll make you prime minister. We'll give you everything you need and everything you want. But Masood said there is no way because your principles, your values can completely contradict mine. I could never, I could never give myself to that. And but but he still believed that, and he hoped that they could that he could establish principles of democracy. And he wanted to convince the Taliban to join into a political process that could lead towards free elections and to democracy in the, the future. Well, what happened? On September 9th, September 9th, 2001, two days before September 11th and the attack on the Twin Towers in America, two days before that, Masood was assassinated by two suicide bombers, suicide attackers inside of Afghanistan. So here we have the, the one force that is really holding back the Taliban. Gets assassinated two days before September 11th. And then September 11th happens, of course, as we all know. And at that point, they, they recognized that that operation was led and taken uh, responsibility for by Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda, which just means the base. The base was in Afghanistan under the Taliban's protection. And so the, the United States thought that it was a good idea to enter and to push back the Taliban to uh, secure its position against the war on terror. And, and, you know, the rest is history, as you know, the last 20 years of war in Afghanistan and, uh, and even Iraq and the Middle East. So that was a brief history, which, which shows us two things. One, Afghanistan has known decades of war, decades of atrocity and genocide uh, by multiple parties. And as I said, it seems to be a fool's errand for America to try to enter. Possibly. Second, U.S. engaging in Afghanistan did push the Taliban back for time. They did retake a lot of land. They did establish a level of freedom. 
But it, it leads to the question of what might we see and what might Afghanistan see in the coming futures. Well, here is a, a clip from the BBC. We actually have two clips from the BBC uh, of them interviewing Taliban leaders in Afghanistan. At the moment, are you preparing for peace or are you preparing for more war? We are absolutely ready for peace. We are most fully ready for jihad. For the We're past not year, fight. you've not been fighting against the Americans. You've been fighting against other Afghans, other Muslims. The problem is with the government. We want an Islamic system. We will continue our jihad until they accept our demands. The Taliban don't see themselves as just a rebel group, but as a government in waiting. And that's true. They don't see themselves as a rebel group. They see themselves as the, the rightful government in Afghanistan. And as they said, we are, we are ready for peace. But if we don't get our demands, if we don't get what we want, we will continue our war. We will continue our fight until we establish what? An Islamic emirate of Afghanistan, an Islamic state, an emirate is just a state, an Islamic state of Afghanistan. That is their goal. And they said, we're not tired of fighting and we're going to continue to fight until we establish our vision, our goal. So the question is, has the Taliban, have, have they changed since 1996 when they, when they put atrocious uh, I don't even want to say laws, but just regulations and, and, and forcing women to stay indoors, forcing kids, young girls to not be, have access to education. Have, have they changed? Does, does the Taliban have a new face? Well, luckily for us, the BBC asked that exact question. Lots of people I speak to, they fear the Taliban coming into power because they think they'll see a repeat of what happened in the 1990s. Do you think that you did things wrong back then, and would things be different now? The Taliban before and the Taliban now are the same. But there are some changes, of course, in personnel. Some people are harsher and some people are calm, calmer. I mean, that's not very encouraging. It's like, well, <laughs> I mean, the, the Taliban is the same Taliban, same, same Taliban from 30 years ago. And uh, our goals really haven't changed. Of course, personnel have changed. Some people are harsher and some people are calmer. In other words, nothing has changed. Our, our goals, our vision of the future, it is the same. So th the sense of fear that people are feeling, it's real. The consequences that people are facing right now in Afghanistan uh, with the, the vacuum of power, it's real. President Biden, he is also correct in saying that, well, the Afghan government needs to, needs to come together and fight because many of these cities have fallen without a fight to the Taliban. Many of these capital cities, they've just fallen without a fight and they've all retreated. Uh, the, the Afghani military has all retreated, which... At the same time, it is going to leave an impact on many lives who are now going to, who have sided with the Afghan government, who are now under Taliban rule. Well, what, what about the legacy? What legacy will be left? Well, here is the last clip that we have for this segment from Ali Latif. As for the legacy, I mean, the fact that we're having these questions is a legacy, right? The fact that the Taliban is still able to pose a threat. To, to, to the government and to the security forces, uh, the fact that we're still having these battles and the fact that we're still asking what might happen to women, to children, to interpreters, you know, 20 years down the line, that is the, is the legacy. It, it, you know, what really was achieved if we're still asking these questions 20 years later? And that's a great question. What was achieved if we're still asking these questions? What, what is achieved if 20 years later, uh, we, we, we end an operation, the Americans end an operation, and it just goes straight back to how it was. You'd have to say then that nothing was achieved, that the, the pulling out just caused a, a great loss, a great loss of life. Uh, and we will see in the coming 
weeks, in months, what is achieved, what remains, and if anything ends up passing through uh, this fire, so to speak, to have any sort of positive impact in in that region uh, moving forward. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. A part of the show where uh, in a post-truth world, in a post-truth society where we have exchanged the truth for a lie, reason for postmodern irrationality, the absurd finally makes sense. Well, if gender pronouns have got you down, if you're feeling confused and wondering, ah, am I, should I, should I say something different to the, the store clerk? Should I use they all the time? Or are they going to be offended? I mean, I remember one time <laughs> I was walking through a mall in, in the States. Uh, I think it was like, a, I don't know what store it was. And I was asking for a certain section, maybe slippers or something. I don't remember. And there was a person behind the counter and I said, excuse me, sir. And this individual turned around and uh, the, the glare that I received from calling him a sir was, uh, it was like ice. It was daggers boring through my soul because this, it definitely looked like it was a he that was trying to look like a she. And I must've used the wrong pronouns. Um, in my embarrassment, uh, and in light of their daggers, I just kept on going on oblivious, acting like uh, I didn't notice that the person wanted to kill me. Uh, and I just kept on with the same sir. But it would have been so great if there's some sort of marker or identifier that was on this individual, on this person, uh, to know what they, he, or she really wanted to be addressed by. Well, don't worry, TikTok has solved all of our problems. I just made pronoun bracelets and I would like to explain them. This one stands for he, him, so green and blue, more masculine colors, I guess. This one stands for she, her, so pink and purple, more feminine color. And then this one stands for they, them, and it's yellow and orange, which are like gender neutral colors. Hold up. I thought that the whole idea behind this movement was that it is sexist to say that blue and green is a masculine color, right? Because the whole idea is there is there is no such thing as masculine and feminine. And uh, so the fact that this, um, well, we'll have to see. I don't know what bracelet she's wearing right now. So uh, they, since she's holding a uh, yellow bracelet, um, since they are saying that... Uh, that the different colors are, are coinciding with uh, normative gender roles, I'm deeply offended. I, I mean, because you know what? I actually liked, I like some pinks, you know, a nice pink shirt or a nice purple uh, a pocket square. That Those are very masculine to me. So uh, off the top, I'm just offended by this. Uh, so I, I, man, so offended. When I wear this one, uh, it means that I just go by they, them. When I wear these two together, it means I go by she, them. When I Okay, so, so here she's showing multiple bracelets of different colors. And so when she wears uh, dual bracelets, she goes by, you know, multiple pronouns. When I wear these together, it means I go by he, them. When I wear all of them, it means that I go by all pronouns. And when I wear these together, it means that I go by she, him. Which, wait, so... Maybe I'm not getting the, 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 I have not read the deeper literature on these pronouns. I've not educated myself in the appropriate manner, but it's quite confusing to me uh, that someone would want to be referred to as she, him, or, or her, her, him, her, he, uh, at the same, I guess because you're non-binary, but then why would you want to be referred to two different binary pronouns at the same time uh anyways this goes on by she him i'm gonna wear them all right now because i go by all pronouns right now my pronoun like preference has changed three times today this does not happen very often with me but i'm wearing all three right now oh um did you catch this did you catch this all pronouns right now my pronoun like preference has changed three times today. My pronoun preference has changed three times today. I guess, I mean, it's true, right? Gender fluidity, 
if, if we're embracing gender fluidity, but man, if, if someone's ident like this used to be called something, this used, this used to have a name and there was multiple personality disorder. If someone's, if someone's identity is changing multiple times throughout the day, that, that, that sounds like it's a, a, a serious issue. This is not something that's just merely laughable, but it seems like there are, I mean, this used to be called a real issue. This used to be called a problem, and now it's celebrated. Now it's celebrated as, as liberation from, from normative, patriarchal, oppressive ideology that has been spurred on by uh, white supremacist colonialism to, to, to destroy the power of the, the trans-enlightened divine ones. When really it's, it's someone that is manifesting multiple personalities, multiple identities in a day, that, is, that sounds like a disorder to me. And a few years ago, it was widely accepted as you need help, not you should be celebrated, not you should be on a stage, not, not we should push this on a generation. What, what sort of damaging effects will this have? And now I'm going to throw this into a hard reverse right here and say it, it's, it's really not a laughing matter. It's really one where I want to use empathy and say, man, how can we get kids like this, minors like this? How can we get them help? How can we, how can parents begin to address these problems before they, they explode into to such life-altering decisions? Because these kids are making life-altering decisions and they're being supported by the school. The school systems in, in the West, not just America, all of Europe, all of Canada, and, it, and it's growing in other places across the, subcon the subcontinent and it's growing across the global south. The school systems will not stop this. The, the gender reassignment centers are not going to stop this. They're going to encourage it. The only place that can be stopped is if, if, if it's stopped in the home where parents are attentive enough and compassionate enough to stop and say, why, why is it that you're feeling such turmoil within yourself? Why is it that you're feeling such uh, visceral uh, hatred towards your physical appearance or different parts of your body that you want to try to erase something on your physical appearance that, that you're going through to such lengths that it's so oppressive? What is the underlying root cause? And we need to, we need to empath use empathy and compassion for those individuals while at the same time, we need to utterly, utterly reject the celebration of this ideology. We need to utterly reject the, the further uh, prop propagating of this thought system, of this worldview, and celebrating it as something that's normal. Two things can be done at one time. We can say, we're not going to accept this as normality and we are going to do what is truly compassionate and help people find the right healing from these deeper underlying issues. Well, this show is brought to you by listeners like you. And thousands of people tune into the show every week. And I'm assuming you do it just like the others do it because you're getting some sort of value out of the show. If you're getting value out of the show, we ask that you would give value back to the show in the measure that you got it in what's called a value for value model. We don't have a lot of or any advertisements here on the show because it's fueled by producers like you. So if you want to give back to the show and see it grow, well, you can do so by visiting lucasscrobot.com and you can give your hard, cold fee out there or you can get a, a uh, podcasting certified 2.0 app where you can stream uh, one Satoshi's and two Satoshi's Bitcoin uh, as you listen to the show, giving one cent or two cents or 
however many cents you want per minute as you listen. Don't go away. We will be right back with our closing Weaver and Loom segment. Welcome back to Weaver and Loom, a part of the show where we take ancient wisdom and we weave it in with our everyday lives so that we can own our future and weave our destinies. Today, we actually have a two for two short, short, but powerful quotes for you today. The first one is by Tolstoy. He writes, let us forgive each other. Only then will we live in peace. And this is true. It is, it is the power of forgiveness. Forgiveness is the only way that we can live in peace. When we are surrounded by conflict, when we are surrounded with, with pain and hurts and wounds, the only way to live in peace, even with ourselves, in, in our interior world, the only way to live in peace is through forgiveness. Even if the other person doesn't want to forgive you, you can at least live in peace by truly releasing and forgiving the other person, forgiving their debt, because the only person that is being held captive by our unforgiveness is ourselves. We are putting ourselves in a cage and we are drinking the poison of bitterness day in and day out. We think that when we hold on to anger and bitterness and unforgiveness, we think that we're hurting the other person, that somehow we're getting vengeance against the other person, but we are the one that's drinking the poison and expecting someone else to die. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is the path and is the key to freedom that we will at least live in peace within ourselves. And if it can happen mutually, we can live in peace among one another. But what happens when it doesn't happen mutually? Like we're witnessing in Afghanistan right now. There's not peace and there's not forgiveness. Or what happens when you see an ideology like transgenderism push. They're, they're not wanting to live in peace. They want to transform and, and totally rewrite reality and bend reality according to their vision. It's not something of, of libertarianism. It's not something that says, let's all, you know what? I'm going to do my thing. You do your thing. It is saying you all must conform to my thing. If not, if you disagree with me, then it's a hate crime. Well, what do we do then? When, when we might be willing to forgive, we might be willing to find that common ground, but the other side wants war. Well, that brings us to our next quote. In war, then, let your great objective be victory, not lengthy campaigns. That's Sun Tzu from The Art of War. In war, then, let your great objective be victory, not lengthy campaigns. And we saw in Afghanistan, a lengthy campaign of 20 years. Now, in, in, the, in the span of wars, there have been wars that lasted 100 years. Men and women, men would go to war every season, every year. It's the season of war. Men get out and go to war every year. So the 20 years in the grand scheme of history is not a forever war, but it was definitely a lengthy campaign. And we definitely look at the, the end of it and say that we have not obtained, that the Afghani government has not obtained victory and that the entire legacy really could be lost in just a matter of, of weeks or months. Erasing all the work that many people have, have strived to do over the course of 20 years. And when we look at the other areas in life, I would ask ourselves, are we, are we just engaged in lengthy campaigns of, of just spinning the wheel, if you will? We're not actually moving anything forward. We're not actually focused on an objective that will bring victory. That will say, this is when this ends. And so for bringing it back to weave it into our personal lives, instead of just living your life with lengthy campaigns, just things that go on forever and never end, where you never quite know if you have had victory or not, in whatever area that you are warring for a victory in. Instead, focus on an objective victory, something that you can measure. And don't worry about those lengthy campaigns, but instead work to be 
victorious. Well, I thank you for being here and listening to this show. Uh, It's the best part of my week, being able to spend it with you. And one way that you can get more value from this show is by sharing it with your friends. And you know what? You don't even have to share the actual episode with your friends, but definitely share these ideas with your spouse, with your kids, with your coworkers. Because it's as we bring up these ideas, as we bring up these these topics that we grapple with here on the show, we build a stronger culture. We cause people to ask questions and they in turn ask us questions and it's through asking questions. We are able to see and think more clearly. And it's the asking of those questions, that pursuing of truth, not to just endlessly ask questions, but to find truth. That is what opens the door for us to understand who we are, our purpose, and own our futures.